Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish, and welcome to the final episode of the podcast for 2021, which, to say the least, has been a challenging year, but I hope you will have some time. I'll hope you have the luxury of being able to spend this holiday season with friends and family and loved ones, and I hope you will stay healthy, and I hope you'll be happy and be able to spend a little bit of time relaxing before we get into 2022, which I hope for all of us is a better year. And of course, I hope that we will get to see uh, each other in person here or there or elsewhere. Now on to the show. On this final episode of 2021, I'm very excited to have Frank Alavsky join me on the program. Frank spends a lot of his time working in the area of data and data visualization accessibility. Now I spent a good chunk of my 2021 thinking about, talking about, writing about racial equity when it comes to data visualization. How do we talk about and to and represent the people and communities that we are focusing on or that we are trying to communicate with. But one of the areas that we all need to be doing a better job with is how we make our content accessible to people who might have vision impairments, physical impairments, intellectual impairments, all the ways in which we might take for granted how we perceive and use information and use data is not necessarily the same experience for everybody. So Frank has been doing a lot of research and a lot of writing, a lot of work in this area. And so we're gonna talk about in this episode, pretty much the entire landscape of what the field of data visualization accessibility looks like and the work that he's doing in his graduate program. There's a lot of resources here that I've put in the show notes, especially linking back to the GitHub page that Frank co-hosts with a few others. And I hope you'll check that out. And I hope you'll think hard, especially as we go into the new year, about how you can make your data visualizations, your data products, everything that you communicate more accessible to more people. Because the more we think about everybody and how everybody can use our materials and our information, the better off we'll all be and the better off we'll be able to make our arguments and tell our stories. So again, happy holidays. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed this final episode of the Policy of His Podcast for 2021. And here's my conversation with Frank. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Good to see you. Good morning, John. I'm I'm good. It's good to see you too. Like great to see you meet you virtually. Yeah. First time. Yeah. Like trading emails and, and Twitter tweets are not like the same as like actually. Yeah, this is a little different. Something. It's just yeah. like level two. Level three would be in person, but yeah. right, right. Level three would be in person. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even without masks at some point, which would be which would be very nice. So I'm excited to have you on the show. You have been doing a lot of work on issues in and around accessibility for people using data, reading data visualizations, and of course, creating those. And so I want to talk about all the things that you've been working on and the stuff that you're doing now. So I thought maybe we would just start by, maybe you could just talk about the problem that you and and a lot of you, you have a lot of collaborators all over the world. So like you and, and, the, and your collaborators and also people that are just sort of in those different areas, like what's the problem you're trying to solve? What are like the biggest challenges that you think content creators have when yeah. thinking about accessibility. Yeah, great. So there's a big P problem and a little P problem. Okay. And the little one I focus on specifically, but the big problem is it's obviously just inclusion, including people in, you know, uh, what, what I think has been a pretty significant shift into the information age. So mm -hmm. we've gone from not just having a lot of information, but now we're starting to build products. We're starting to use it. Information's making its way, a dense information is making its way into news articles, into personal applications um, on our phones, um, on our computers, all over the place. So it's 
becoming ubiquitous, these data experiences that we have, um, and we're using them to make decisions about our lives. And um, we also see this kind of rise of use in policy. Not that policy mm-hmm. wasn't data driven, but you know, it's more and more so we see um, a lot of data being used to solve big world problems. Mm-hmm. So the big P issue here is including people in learning, in jobs, in decision making, in their own lives for the sake of the world. And you know, 26% of Americans uh, report having some kind of disability, right? And so that means, you know, there's going to be a lot of inclusion efforts to kind of hit a broad spectrum of different kinds of people, Um, you know, uh, globally, low vision or uncorrected visual impairment affects almost 30% of people. It's 28%. It's one of the biggest global health inclusion efforts worldwide is vision more broadly. And so, uh, you know, as you can guess, data visualization is... uh, (laughs) You know, it's it's in it's in a tricky situation. So that's the big right. P problem. Yeah. The the little P problem, I think you already kind of hit the nail on the head, which is we're producing this stuff at scale. And by we I mean practitioners, researchers, people who do this stuff and make this stuff. Um, we're producing things at scale, but we don't really have the tools to make things accessible at scale. And mm-hmm. um it's like we have a fire hose of like awesome ways to get data out there. I guess sometimes we may think our, our own workflows are too slow and we're always trying to improve how fast yeah, things work. Right. But, yeah. But you know, with Tableau or, you know, like the rise, the advent of, you know, visually driven like user interfaces for building like data experiences, it's a lot easier than it was. And it's getting mm-hmm. even better. But we haven't really made the same strides for making these things accessible. Yeah. And there's a huge gap um, that we're beginning to form. And it's only going to get worse if we don't address it soon. And that right. gap is, you know, users and also practitioners with disabilities are being left out of this process. Mm-hmm. So I want to focus on, on vision for just a second, because my feeling, not data measured, but my feeling is that the data viz field focuses very heavily on color, uh, what would most people call color blindness, but color vision issues. So with that statement, I have I have two questions. First, perhaps more importantly, can you lay out some other vision difficulties or disabilities that people have that are not color, related to color? Because I, I get a feeling that maybe not a lot of people know or familiar with what other vision challenges people might have. And then secondly, mm-hmm. do you agree with that statement that like far too much of the focus is on color and not on other forms of disabilities? Okay, great question. Uh, <laughs> this is spoken about in the past so uh you know secret it up for you i'm doing it exactly thank you (laughs) really set me up there yeah right Um, yeah so yeah you know there's layers to i think unlearning ableism the work of making something accessible actually begins with unlearning your own kind of ableist assumptions about what we need to fix or address in a given um in a given thing that we're making and um, you know, visual impairment has a pretty broad spectrum. So when even just low vision, which is a way that we refer to kind of a, a large collection of things that are not just, you don't just need glasses, like low vision mm-hmm. is like the next level. Um, but it's not blindness, which is also like kind of a category. And blindness is also a spectrum, by the way, right? Like I think right. both th- hear blindness and they think it's just darkness. 
actually blindness is a spectrum of acuity. Um, you know, one of the most common um, low vision um, impairments is caused by diabetes, diabetic um, retinopathy. And so this is like you have like large splotches of areas in your sight where you can't see. Um, and so actually like you have decent acuity outside of that, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of like issues in how you focus, how you move your eyes through content, et cetera, et cetera. So right. um, that's just one example. Um, and then uh, when it comes to your question about, you know, color vision deficiency, also known as colorblindness, we actually have a, like a really rich history in research and practice dating back from like late eighties, early nineties about, you know, uh, you know, how do we design and make tools for and research this particular issue? And it largely affects, you know, like between four and eight percent of, you know, XY chromosome individuals mm -hmm. of European descent. And then it's a much lower percentage, um, you know, from people of a different ancestry. Mm -hmm. And it's about, you know, maybe one percent. Mm. Um, for people of an XX chromosome makeup. So right. like it, it largely affects men and mostly white men, right? And yeah, so yeah. if you think about it, you know, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to dig in too much to why right. this has been a thing we've, <laughs> yeah. you know, focused on a lot. And I actually don't want to say that we shouldn't focus on it because it's still an inclusion effort. We still should. And, sure. you know, we have a lot of great tools for making colorblind safe palettes, um, you know, for analyzing you know, different uh, types of color vision deficiency. We have like great simulators and all kinds of things. And actually, I think it's a good example of, you know, CVD is a good example of, hey, there are a lot of other things we should have the same amount of tools and research for. Mm -hmm. Can we set this as kind of like a minimum goalpost for like right. a lot of other areas? I think that'd be great. So I don't really want to like put it down, like only yeah. focus on it too much. But I do <laughs> want to say like, let's take this fervor that we've, you know, we've really yeah. worked hard to include people with CVD and data viz. Let's just like keep doing that. Like mm -hmm. the quest doesn't end there. Let's let's yeah. keep going. Yeah, that's great. So now you've helped build your own tool about accessibility. Yeah. Um, chartability. And so I just want to give you a chance to just like, I was just to say like, just talk about it, but actually maybe I'll, I'll help structure the, the question a little bit. So talking about accessibility tools and writing about them in sort of blog posts and, and books and, and what have you and articles is one thing, but actually building a tool, a functional tool that people can use is a totally different thing. So can you talk a little bit about where that originated and then how you built it? And then, and then for folks who don't know about it, and of course put the, the link in the show notes, but for folks who don't know about it, you know, what it is and what it helps them do. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, let's see if I can do that in order. <laughs> Sorry, what's the very first thing you asked? Okay, so first one was uh, origins, right? Yeah, and right, then right. and then it's sort of how the how that process of building it went. Okay, yeah. So if we think back to my little p problem that mm -hmm. people are not able to address accessibility at the same scale that we are able to produce experiences, right? Driven by data, it's like we're making way more data viz than we can then we're making them accessible. Right. Um, I think that to me, the first step is people just need to be able to evaluate whether or not something is or is not accessible according to a, a robust set of criteria, right? That's step one for me. So that is where chartability comes in. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the, the origin for it. 
Um, it's a synthesis of quite a lot of things. Um, took uh, WCAG, which is Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. It's a global standard. It affects like 56% of the world's population in some form of governance or policy. So like it's the big standard for technology right. that we have. Um, I took WCAG standards, which are pretty like broad in their application mm -hmm. and focused them specifically on what I call data experiences, but it's mostly data visualizations or data-driven interfaces. Um, so I took that set of standards, made them relevant, technically speaking, for you know a specific line of work. And then mm -hmm. I also brought in research. There's a lot of great research in, in the data viz space, um, including related to accessibility that just has never made it to global standards for, mm -hmm. you know, probably because it's so specific, I'm assuming, but right. global standards also move slow. Don't hate me. What okay, people? I love you all. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a very slow moving process. Yeah. And so uh, I've also brought that stuff in and, and synthesized it. So at its base, it's a set of heuristics. It's a set mm -hmm. of tests, right? Like test this thing, do this thing. Um, and, right. and at the heart of it, that's, that's what it is. That's its origin story. Huh. And so for those who haven't gone to the chartability site, um, how do you hope that they will use the tool? Yeah. Um, it takes bravery <laughs> because <laughs> you're going to be embarking into uncharted space when you start yeah. using it. It's a much, much, much lower learning curve than like international accessibility standards like WCAG. WCAG is very mm -hmm. hard to start getting into to start learning. So it's easier there, but yeah. it's still difficult. You're going to have to practice using a screen reader. That's just one of the 50 tests in chartability. Mm -hmm. The current release has 45, but the next release will have 50. So it's like, you're going to have to use a tool you've never used before. Uh, you're going to have to kind of like learn how to do a contrast ratio test. Like, you know, these are things people haven't really, you know, a lot of people yeah. haven't really done. So right. it, it'll take some, you know, guts to give it a shot. Your first time yeah. doing it might take you like, if you do the whole thing, it could take you like <laughs> four hours. It's, yeah, yeah. you know, it'll take you a while. But is it, but from your perspective, is it kind of like getting the machines up and running? Like once you sort of get the machines oh, going, yeah. then it's four hours the first time, but the next oh, yeah. time it's going to take you, I mean, a fraction of that time. Oh yeah, I can I can just tell by looking at things most of the time now, and because I'm so, like, uh, I've seen so many of the same issues, I yeah. usually know like right away like the three or four things I should just check first, right. and right. you know, good chance yeah. there's going to be some failures <laughs> there. So yeah, it's supposed to help people audit, and one of mm -hmm. the things I think that people don't realize about auditing is that a good audit if you measure an audit in terms of its effectiveness, it, it mm -hmm. caught failures, right? Yeah. So you're not supposed to use it to kind of like say, oh, I did a good job. I only had 10 things wrong. No, 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 no. Yeah. You put on your auditor hat, you take off your data viz person hat, right. and you say like, okay, my job right now is to see how many things I can catch. Yeah. And that's it. That's your only goal is just to catch things that were not accessible or inaccessible right. about your work. Right. So, yeah. Can you talk real briefly about uh, screen readers for, for maybe for folks who, who don't know how they work in particular? I mean, we could talk about the, the basics of how it you know reads a document out loud, but 
but with data viz in particular, because that's that's our focus. Like, I don't really know what my question is here, to be honest. But like, yeah. maybe like you know, do you have a, a particular screen reader that you like to use, especially for testing? And it's you know, I, I find some of them are kind of hard to like the even the built-in one on the Mac is sort of hard to get up yeah. and running. Yeah, um, it yeah. should just be like a click of a button, like. On my Xbox, you literally click a button and you turn on the accessibility features and it reads it aloud. Like, I don't know why it's so hard on the Mac. But anyways, um, and then like, are there tools out there and we don't need to like, you know, hammer people, but like, are there ones that you think are good or let me not say, let me say, not say good, better um, at, at some of these tasks? Okay. All right. So I, know, I, keep, I keep giving you like 400 questions in one time, but I've got no, so okay. much I want to learn from you, Frank. <laughs> just like, just, just feed me all the information. <laughs> all right. So screen readers. My yeah. favorite is NVDA for a few reasons. One, it's free. Two, it's community contributed. So like there's a, a lot of advantages and disadvantages to that model, right? But um, yep. the fact that it's free is great and only is for PCs. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that's a disadvantage. Um, if I'm only going to test like minimally i do mm-hmm. um on the pc nvda and then on um a mac voiceover those okay. two are um like cover a pretty broad spectrum but really like jaws is the most used screen reader so if anybody does this work professionally you should like get a license for your org it's like a thousand bucks or so yeah. and um because it's it's actually the one that most people use um it's okay. still the most popular Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, voiceover is really intelligent and it's so good at certain things that you have to test stuff with it because it will have a different experience than other screen readers. Oh, because, interesting. Yeah. It, folks at Apple, I mean, no, I, yeah. I work with some of them, so I'm not trying to butter them up, but right. like, <laughs> you know, CMU has a lot of like Apple connections in the HDI. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah. Voiceover is pretty smart, and I, okay. I don't want to say that other screen readers aren't, but they're like they very much follow the API for mm-hmm. assistive technologies of it, their class. So they're just trying to just you know fit that standard. Um, yeah, and so you're going to get a little different experience across all of them, honestly, and in okay. different browsers and whatever. So right, but Jaws, but you would say Jaws is the what sort of the enterprise level, professional level yeah. screen reader? Okay, it's the right. pro tool. It's okay. like yeah. Okay. It's the oldest, it's the most established, it's also the most used. Right. Yeah, it's it's I mean, I don't want to say it's the best cuz no, no, sure. we all have pros and cons, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um yeah, um, and you know, for folks who aren't familiar with like what's like why screen readers, there's like there's a whole world on this, but I think Leonie Watson, a good friend of mine, she's a accessibility subject matter expert, but also, you know, dabbles in data visualization. Mm -hmm. She's a native screen reader user. um, And that's how we refer to somebody who, you know, uses it and part of their daily life. And uh, she wrote an article on voice modulation and synthetic speech Mm -hmm. and basically explaining why screen readers still use this kind of like robotic voice. Yeah. And it's because screen reader users are very fast. Like you first turn on a screen reader, it reads super slow. Mm-hmm. It's like if you watched all your videos on YouTube at quarter speed, like mm-hmm. it's just painfully slow for somebody who uses this tool daily. And, you know, like expert screen reader users will listen at a speed of like 400 words per minute, which is way faster than we would ever talk. Yeah, wow. But it's because it's how they get their information and yeah. they're very used to it and very efficient. 
And so the, the main advantage of the screen reader is it's like its speed, its efficiency. Um, yeah, they're pretty well-established standards right. in certain environments also. So, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then what about on the, on the data viz tools? Have you found that some tools are better at uh, accessibility? I mean, I know the folks over at Power BI have spent a lot of time thinking about accessibility. And from what I've heard, like Tableau may not be as sort of, I don't want to say bad. Again, I don't want to say, I don't want to say as advanced. Um, if we're wearing our, our tool, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're wearing yeah. our chartability hat, they're all yeah, bad because yeah, yeah. they all have failures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, which so one then has the fewest like audit check marks if you go through chartability? It's it's very tough because um, as Christy Martini has shown in his like Tableau accessibility journey, you can yeah. hack Tableau to do like pretty wild things, like have keyboard navigation on chart elements. That's something mm -hmm. that Power BI has that Tableau does not, but right. you can hack Tableau to do it, right? So if we just compare the tool, it's like, okay, you could you could technically pass if you spend like 40 hours on this one issue and you're a Tableau Zen master, right? right, right. <laughs> so like, so like <laughs> the real thing that I measure is not that you can f like create a perfect test case that does really good because yeah. a lot of these tools actually can be pretty competitive in that if you set it up like that right yeah but it's like can an everyday data viz person kind of put something together that like really works and yeah actually i mean i don't want to say power bi is good because like there's so many things you know that they right. know me they all know me so <laughs> like yeah there are a lot of things i think that uh they could improve on they are improving on um but uh Thinking in terms of labor is a very good way to frame accessibility. Like you want to pick a tool that makes the least amount of work for you, the practitioner, mm -hmm. and also the least amount of work for your user. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Christy Martini also in his accessibility journey with Tableau measured how many keystrokes he had to press when using a screen reader to get the information he needed out of a visualization. And it was like 130 or something, 130 mm. keystrokes to just get like basic info. And the cognitive yeah. load was so heavy because it's like, how can you even store this information yeah. in your head as you're going through it? There's so much. But when he added like a keyboard navigable thing and the data is like right there, right in the visual, you're like just going through it. He was immediately able to jump in and start getting you know, uh, information much, much faster. Right. Right. And so, yeah, they, there's like all kinds of trade-offs. I will say yeah. though, the absolute best stuff is like, you know, you're coding at a low level in JavaScript. Like right. that's the best stuff. So we're talking like high charts, Visa mm -hmm. chart components. I'm biased because that's the library I contributed <laughs> to when I was at Visa. But yeah, there's some really good ones out there that I think high charts is definitely the one that it's like, they set the standard for everyone else. They have sonification. They have yeah. like tools to export for tactile graphics. I mean, they're like, they're really kicking butt. They really care about it. That's great. That's great. That's good to know. Okay. So I'll list all these in the show notes for people, you know, uh, uh, Chris's work and um, links to some of these other articles that, that you've mentioned. Um, so uh, before I let you go, um, I want to talk about your, what you're doing right now. So you're back in grad school. Um, so I'm excited to hear about the program. Uh, once you get through this first year, the dreaded first year of grad school, then you get to do the fun part, which is the research. So like, I'm sure you have like this big binder of things that you want to write about, but like, yeah, I yeah. mean, tell folks about like the whole, the whole situation. 
Okay, so I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but I'm expected to do research right now. Oh, right away. Okay. <laughs> it's going. It's going. Econ, We're going. E- at econ, you just like do math. There's like, I used to call it math with no numbers. You just do math theory for like the first oh, year. Spicy. And you have these big exams and then you can okay. start and then you can finally start doing some. Well, honestly, Plus. that would be nice to have a year just to kind of <laughs> prepare. Yeah. But no, I'm going. We're going You're already. Right. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I... Obviously, I'm hoping to focus on what I'm calling information-rich systems. And I'm doing this, I'm not specifically talking about data visualization because um, I want to also anticipate future interfaces, future ways of working with data. And really, the core problem to me is the richness and density and complexity that we use information and how do we make kind of that stuff accessible. Data visualization is obviously, to me, the first step. And uh, accessibility then, like what in accessibility, this broad, broad world, what am I going to focus on? And obviously I said my big, my little P problem is, you know, helping practitioners do stuff. So I'm going to try and, you know, really focus kind of on a computer sciences end of things, making tools that help people do this work. But also um, I'm really interested in um, motor impairment and um, animation. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. things that really have been, understudied and underfocused in in terms of accessibility you know uh motor impairment is like you know data visualization still largely lives in a um mouse point click drag kind of paradigm yeah and not only is that not even suited to the times we live in but also it's not very accessible yeah and so i'm kind of curious you know what are other interaction modalities that we can look at and how do we adapt a system to suit the user's needs. So if I can do one thing that's kind of academic, it's just to emphasize when you think about accessibility, try not to expect the user to adapt to the system. Try not to augment the user so that they fit the system's expectations. And instead try and design your system to have like a breadth of a robust set of adaptations that can suit different user input. Just mouse input is going to have a lot of what's called ability assumptions about your users. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have keyboard accessibility that actually suits a lot of assistive technologies, a lot of AT use the keyboard interface. Um, so you're going to immediately make your visualization a lot more accessible to a lot of other people just by keyboard and then touch and then other inputs also you can really explore. But I would say at least keyboard and mouse and touch are like kind of the holy trinity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's also a lot of other ways to think about adapting your system to suit user needs that I think don't just apply to accessibility. It's just, you know, and I've talked about this a lot too. Data visualization has this problem where we kind of design stuff with the assumption that it's static, but we don't live in a static world anymore. Right. We have these right. digital tools. Why not? allow users to self-advocate, to set preferences, to mm-hmm. even adjust the visualization space itself to suit their needs. Um, right. And uh, and I think that, that there's a lot of room for that. And, you know, I would say data-driven journalism explores this more than anywhere else Yeah. at, at scale. I think they do a, lot, a really good job at this. But um, I think that, you know, the business space building analytical tools, there's a huge potential there as well also. Yeah, and if there's, you know, 26% of Americans reporting some yeah. type of disability. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge market. 
right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's going untapped, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I heard somebody talk about how they they proposed a model to Google or something, and it was like only 93% effective. And Google was like, I don't care, get, get better. You need to get much, much higher before we're even going to be interested in you. And then I'm thinking, okay, data visualization at most, you know, especially like these complex but flimsy things that we build, they're very, they're very fragile yeah. experiences, right? Right. They're at most 75% effective, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, how's that? You know, we got we got to really improve our our uh, you know market yeah. and uh, effectiveness here. So yeah, absolutely. I want to let you go, but you, you mentioned um, motor impairments, and so I wanted to ask one last question because yeah. one of the things that I find in talking about accessibility is that there's sort of limited, and this echoes back to our earlier conversation on color, sort of a limited, somewhat limited perspective on what accessibility means, right? Mm-hmm. There's sort of like a big focus on color. And that might be because, especially for people just starting out, it's easy to say, hey, you know, like you said, there's a, lot right. of, a ton of tools. So you could do a quick test and you can sort of fix that. But there's motor impairments. There's there's physical mm-hmm. impairments. There's intellectual impairments. And I also wanted to ask you specifically about access, just, just access to a lot of these yeah. tools. Like we make a lot of things that are like require a lot of bandwidth, but like mm-hmm. we know that not everybody has access just generally to like a good like broadband access. So yeah. I guess my question is, I don't know what my question is. I guess just like the just like the broader thought yep. about accessibility, just like, okay, so maybe I'll, I'll try to crystallize this into a question. As you can see, when I do these podcasts, it's just kind of like off the cuff, right? Um, <laughs> and you've alluded to this already many times, but like, What's the thing that people should keep in mind when they think about accessibility in their work? Yeah, it's definitely, and this is why data visualization is a beautiful place for doing accessibility. And I think there's a rich potential to like, just get tons of practitioners excited about accessibility is because yeah. accessibility is about thinking of about your audience. It's about recognizing, is this experience painful? Is it difficult for some people? And then making it better. And if you think about it, the heart of visualization is looking at data and saying, this is terrible. Right. <laughs> this is bad. Right. Let's let's see if we can visualize this and make it yeah. easier. Right. Right. So like we're already doing the core activity of providing assistance, right? Is yeah. is what we do with visualization. And like, let's keep going. It doesn't right. stop there. And so yeah. yeah, it's it's about what are called ability assumptions. That's like the thing you should think about. What are the assumptions I have about my audience's ability and how can I reach more people? And Mm -hmm. ability, I'm glad that you talked about bandwidth um, because data visualization is actually a really great way to transfer, we're talking actual like bytes of data in a small package because images could be much smaller than entire databases, right? Right. But data visualization has a tendency to actually really bloat (laughs) the space, right? So that you have like really high graphics requirements, connection requirements, et cetera. And there's a global access issue that I think a lot of people are really not considering. I do know some folks that are, I would say that 538, the folks I've talked to there, this is like one of their like core things they're focusing on. I think it's beautiful. And so, yeah, um, just really trying to be as inclusive as possible in your work by questioning your ability assumptions. It's undoing ableism, right? We're all this way. We all have internal ableism. It's not like it's bad to say that you do. I do. And it's just part of the work. It's just undoing your assumptions. Yeah. 
That's great. Um, Frank, thanks so much for coming on the show. I mean, I have learned a ton. I've got a lot of more reading to do. Uh, thanks so much. Good luck in grad school. I'm excited to see all the stuff that comes out. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of the show and all the shows in 2021. Uh, hopefully you'll get a little bit of a break. Maybe go back and check out a few of the great episodes that we've put up over this past year. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't thank all the people who helped me with the show. Of course, all the guests who have come on the show, taking time out of their schedule to answer my questions and to put up with me as I veer off the questions that I said I would ask them and to ask other questions. Big thank you to the folks who helped me with the transcription. Big thank you to Ken Skaggs for helping with the audio editing. And a big thank you to Sharon Satsky Ramirez for all the editing and the advertising and all the things that go together in making this podcast a success. If you would like to help see the podcast continue into 2022, please consider making a financial contribution over at Patreon or on my PayPal channel, or just spread the word. Uh, put a review up on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. But whatever it is, have a healthy, happy holidays and a happy and healthy new year. And I will talk to you in 2022. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.